Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 16. And I'm going to be ambitious tonight and hope to get through two chapters. So we've been, we've been going through this book and we've been seeing this interesting dialogue between Job and his friends. And sometimes we see Job uh, speaking with God and complaining sometimes about what's going on in his life. And we can understand that. He I mean, obviously, if you, if you know, we go back to the beginning and you know the story, it's a tragedy. And, um, there, you know, we wonder sometimes why things happen to us. You know, even with what's been going on for the past several months, sometimes we wonder, God, are you there? God, why are you allowing this? So we can certainly understand Job's questioning. Um, but then, you know, we always, we should, we should have people around us that support us in those things. And that helps us get through those things. But Job really didn't have that. In chapter 15, the last time we were together, Eliphaz was really giving it to Job, you know, and uh, he was making false accusations against him. He was mischaracterizing God to Job. And we saw Job at a very, very low point um, in, in, in this book. We saw him dejected. We saw him disappointed in his friends. Did you ever have this sense that your friends aren't really um, helping you and comforting you and bringing healing to your life, but actually making matters worse? Well, I hope you never experienced that, but Job certainly did. In chapter 16, we hear from Job. We hear him fighting back here. He, it's, it's almost like you can sense he gets this burst of energy and he uses it to defend his honor. And he also uses it to rebuke his friends for the really poor job that they're doing in ministering to him. You know, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, with us, you know, voicing um, our, maybe our displeasure or our disappointment when someone who's supposed to be supporting us and lifting us up out of our, out of our, um, our mourning and our grief is really not doing a great job. Uh, and so this is what Job does here. But this is not the first time that he kind of called out these guys for the bad job that they were doing in ministering to him and in counseling him. Uh, before, in uh, a couple of different places, he calls them names. You know, he calls them deceitful brooks in Job 6.15. He says, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of a brook that pass away. And then in uh, Job 13, he calls them worthless physicians. Remember, he said, you forgers of lies, you worth you're all worthless physicians. And what he was saying there is, you know, in the context of a, a deceitful brook, it promises refreshment, right? It promises encouragement, but it never delivers. And worthless physicians, you know, uh, promise healing, but sometimes they can ma actually make the condition worse if they're really not good. So this is what he compared them to. Today, 
he, in these chapters, he kind of goes on and uh, rebukes them a little bit further for their lack of understanding, their lack of empathy with what Job is going through. And we're going to jump right in so we can get through both chapters tonight. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16, it says, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words, words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I, I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. So Job here calls them miserable comforters. So add it to the list of deceitful brooks and worthless physicians. Now they're miserable comforters. So he doesn't mince words. He tells them when they're not doing a good job, when they're not ministering to his, to his uh, suffering. Um, and uh, it's a shame, I think, when we look at this whole picture that Job not only has to deal with uh, the loss, deal with the tragedy and also has to defend himself against these so-called friends. Um, it might be the inspiration for that old saying, you know, with friends like you who needs enemies, because they just were, were not doing a good job in ministering to his needs. And Job tells them, and I, I believe that it's true, that if he were in their shoes, he wouldn't be so thoughtless. He wouldn't be so cruel as their being. He would bring words of healing. He would bring words of comfort, not words that hurt and tear down. And I think for us, I think it's really important that we try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. None of us, none of us are immune to suffering in this world. And we should never, ever forget what it feels like to go through tragedy because that kind of gives us a perspective that, that we can use or that God can use through us to bring comfort and consolation to others who are also going through a difficult time. So we, we may be put in a position to counsel someone who's experiencing something that we've actually gone through ourselves. So we never, ever want to forget um, where where we came from, or not to put ourselves in their shoes and what they're going through. And Jesus tells us this because the opposite of that is just being very harsh with people and pointing out their, um, their faults and their flaws and not really lifting them up, but more just, uh, you know, just telling them what they're doing wrong. And that's what Job's friends were doing. Jesus gives us instruction in this as he teaches his disciple how to minister to others and how to deal with, with people, uh, you know, uh, other disciples, other believers. And so in Luke 6, 41 and 42, Jesus says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not, do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. So this is a very interesting thing that Jesus tells us, tells his disciples and us, 
is, is that you, you may be in a position, in a relationship with someone, that you can help them through a difficult time or even tell them when they're going astray or when there's some error in their life. But be careful when you do that because you have to remember, too, that we're all sinners, right? We're, none of us are immune to that. And there may be something in, in your life that God wants to remove before you really are able to minister to that other person. So it takes a lot of careful prayer before we put ourselves in those positions to do that. I don't think Job's friends really prayed about how they ministered to him or counseled him. Um, I think they just went and they kind of attacked him. They were constantly looking at Job's situation Right and making incorrect assumptions about Job's circumstances, about Job's life, about Job's walk with the Lord, about Job's prayer life, about the fact that he must have done some grave sin that got him into this mess. So they were making, instead of ministering and comforting and consoling him, they were making these accusations. And they didn't look at the reality of their own sin. Instead, they pointed out Job's sin. I think there's a a great level of humility that is necessary when we minister to others in this way because our words will not be as harsh if we understand that we also are susceptible to sin in our life. Uh, We have to find a way, right, to identify with people in order to minister to their needs. Pride and arrogance should never be a part of how we treat others. Humility is that godly trait that will allow us to relate to other people in a way that they can accept what we have to say. Or else what? The counsel will be ineffective, right? It will fall on deaf ears, and they'll just look at us as arrogant people who think that we're better than them. So we need to really take a look at this. And I think, of course, Jesus puts it perfectly in the way he describes it, uh, that there's always something going on in our lives that we need to be praying about before we, um, we go to someone else. In the next passage here in verses 6 through 14, we see how Job now mourns the rejection of his friends. And he also includes in this... Uh, the attacks from God because he feels like he's being attacked on two fronts. So in verses 6 through 14, it says, Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up. And it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath. He hates me and gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. 
He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Wow. (laughs) Job is really feeling it here. But I think he's a little confused. I, 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 I mean, listen to how he's talking about God, right? That he's his adversary, that he's his enemy, that he's attacking him, that he's hunting him down, right? And he's confused here as to the best way to kind of alleviate the misery that uh, his circumstances are putting him in. Um, he doesn't know whether he should speak because every time he opens his mouth, right, his friends have something to say about what he says. Or if he's, if he's silent, if he's quiet, of course, he has no way to defend himself, uh, no way to uh, advocate for his own, for himself. And so he doesn't know what to do. Whether he speaks or he's quiet, it seems like there's no relief for Job. So now he turns his focus to God, right? He attempts to ease his suffering by telling his friends what he's experiencing at the hands of God. Imagine going to one of your friends and they know what you're going through, but then you just pouring your heart out to them and telling them, look what God's doing to me. God's attacking me. It's like he's my enemy. It's like I can't get away from him. He's chasing me down. He's, he's, he's circling around me. This is what Job feels like. You know? and, and he's telling his friends this to let them see, kind of give them insight into what he's experiencing. And I think he's doing it for, obviously, he's just expressing his emotions and his thoughts here. But maybe if they hear what Job is really going through, maybe if he puts it in such graphic language, they'll be more prone to empathize with him. Maybe. I don't know. But I know that if we get really emotional and graphic about what we're going through, people might tend to listen more. They might tend to understand more. You know, maybe, you know, sometimes we're so busy in this life that, you know, we can ask someone, hey, how you doing? And they'll say, oh, I um, just found out that I'm, I have this terrible disease. And you say, okay, we'll see you next time. You know, it's like, it's almost like a conversation. Are you really listening to people, you know? And so maybe they have to put it in more graphic terms to get us to understand, to get us to actually even listen and care. It's a shame that that's where we're at, but I think it was the same back then. I think people just didn't hear unless they were really, uh, it was really brought to them in in this graphic way. So he tells his friends here that God has sapped him of all of his strength. He's close. He's close to just giving up, close to surrendering to God. He's, He's exhausted. You can almost sense it in the words that he's using. He's exhausted from this struggle and he's trying to prove his innocence, right? And he's trying to accept what God has allowed in his life and he's growing weary because of all of this. And he describes this attack that he senses from God. And in verse 9, he describes God as a ferocious beast, right? It says... He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. You can think of like a lion tearing apart, you know, the flesh. 
right? In verse 11, he considers God his traitor. He turned me over to the hands of the wicked. He's turned his back on me. And, you know, he's delivered me to the ungodly, Job says. And then in verse 12, he considers God somebody that he's wrestling with, that he's grappling with. And he calls him an archer, you know, somebody who's out after him with a weapon trying to put him down. And there's a commentary that speaks about this. It says, Job sees himself as the object of God's wrath. He pictures God as a savage beast, hunting him down and tearing him apart limb from limb. Our suffering can give us a distorted view of God, can't it? And I think that's where Job is. He's suffering so, so much that it's, it's distorting his view of God. And did you ever notice, I don't know, maybe it's just me, that sometimes trials come at us like in rapid succession, one after another. I've noticed that in times of my life, bad news kind of comes in bunches. It's almost like we're being tested to see how much we can bear. Um, you know, sometimes there's times where everything's really going very well and there's no trials, there's no difficulties, and then one thing happens and it's almost like it spirals out of control. Uh, the Apostle Peter gives us kind of an understanding of, of the trials that we go through and how God actually can use those things to reveal the object of our faith. And in 1 Peter 6 and 7, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, for though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by, by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what do trials do for us? What do trials do in our relationship with God? Well, it reveals Jesus through the testing of our faith. Who is our faith in? Who are we putting our faith in? Is it in man or is it in God? You know, when we experience the storms of life, and, you know, we just went through this hurricane here. We, everywhere you look, there's downed trees, right? We should be like a tree that digs its roots in even more deeply, right, for a greater grip on the earth. You know, if you look around, the trees that are uprooted probably had shallow roots, right? And they weren't really deep down in the, in the earth, we need to dig our roots down deeply into God's Word and cling to the promises that He makes in the Bible so that we can weather those things that are going to come against us. And this doesn't prove what, but it proves who our faith is in, especially in the most difficult times of life. You know, watched out our windows the last couple of days and saw as trees, we have a couple of newer trees in our yard and just bending, 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 bending over, wondering if they were going to break or not. Um, but the ones with the shallow roots, you walk around or you drive around and you see they're just uprooted like they were nothing. Um, we need to be deeply rooted in God's Word. That's the point here. That's the point. Jeremiah 17.8 puts it beautifully, 
poetically. It says, For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its, sp- spreads out its, its roots by the river, and will, will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So we are, we are supposed to be fruit bearers for the Lord, right? And when trials come, sometimes we, we stop bearing fruit. Sometimes we wither under the heat of trials. But God doesn't want us to do that. Amen? So Job now continues, and he's kind of pleading with God for justice. And he's wondering why he's going through this trial. In verses 15 through 17, he says, I have sown sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death, although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Those ancient mourning rituals, right, included certain practices that would kind of identify a person as being in mourning or having suffered some great loss. Sackcloth, ashes, and weeping are those demonstrations of true grief. And through it all, we see Job hanging on dearly to one thing. One thing he will not let go of through this whole thing, through the whole ordeal, and that is his connection to God. His connection to God through prayer. And this is so important for us believers to remember that especially when we're going through deep sorrow, deep trials, not to lose our fellowship with God. Because it's ultimately Him who's going to get us through, right? And as Job found out, his friends were really of no help, no comfort to him. And although our friends may help us, ultimately it's God who's going to get us through Uh, the trial that we're going through. We must always remember not to let go of God in our trials. Verses 18 through 22 show us now Job crying out to the Lord to vindicate him before he dies. It says, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For for when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Um, In ancient times, it was believed that the innocent victims, after they died, would cry out to God from the ground for vindication. And we see that in Genesis Four in this account of Cain and Abel, right? It's in verse 8 through 10. It says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me, from the ground. The voice of innocence crying out from the ground. We can relate to Job's situation and Abel's situation as innocent people. We may have been persecuted. We may have been 
uh, you know, somebody might have come against us, and we're completely innocent in that. And Job here felt like he was at his limit, but he wanted to still prove his innocence before he left the, this world. Job lamented that, in fact, in his mind, there was no one to advocate. What a situation, what a, what a sorrowful situation to be in, that you feel like there's no one there on your behalf. There was no one to advocate before God for him. But we, we, be, we believe and we understand because the, the Bible tells us that we do, right? We do have an advocate, someone who will plead our cause before the Father. 1 John 2, 1, it tells us, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we come, right? We come as, as believers before a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. And Jesus, at that throne of grace, makes intercession to the Father for us. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Imagine that. Imagine the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lives to make intercession for you and I before the Father. Just meditate on that for a second. He, he always lives to make intercession. We have an advocate. Right? We have an advocate who's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, who pleads our cause when we go to him in sincere, um, you know, asking for forgiveness. When we, we sincerely confess to the Lord, he makes inter intercession for us. How awesome is that? Job 17 We'll move on and we'll see Job here pivoting, kind of pivoting from this pleading for justice, pleading for vindication. Uh, now he's pleading for God to kind of put an end to his misery, to put an end to his suffering. And Job complains here to both God and his friends. Remember, his friends are probably listening to all of this. This is not necessarily uh, Job sitting alone. He's, they're probably in earshot of what he's saying. So he's complaining to his friends. He's complaining to God, and, and the, you know everyone's hearing. So he pleads for an advocate at the end of chapter 16 because he senses that he can't bear anymore. He's almost at the end of his rope. It says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 17, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does my not eye dwell on their provocation? So Job here, he's, he's done. His spirit is broken. His so-called friends have turned from a support in his grief to mocking him. So Job turns his eyes upward toward heaven to seek God to sustain him through this trial. In verses 3 through 5, it says, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. 
Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. So Job here is looking, he's kind of asking for a peace treaty with God. God, you've been attacking me. You've been coming at me. It's been relentless. I'm at my wit's end. I, I can't bear any more, God. I'm begging you. I'm pleading. Let's make a peace treaty between us. An end, so to speak, to the hostilities. And rightly so, he seeks for God to pronounce him innocent. And, you know, we too, we're seen as righteous before God. Why? Because we're righteous? Because we're so great? No. Because we've been given something. We've been given the righteousness of Christ in return for our sins. We're not, again, God doesn't see our sins when we put our faith and trust in Christ. He sees the righteousness of his son. Job understood that his salvation was out of his control. Man cannot save himself, right? But thank God that God had done all the work through his son, Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works. We can't save ourselves. We need God. Just like the song we sang tonight, Lord, we need you because we know that we can't do it. Job here in the next few verses kind of gives us a view into his own heart as he describes suffering but kind of through the eyes of a believer. Remember, he never lost that connection with God. He trusted. He doubted sometimes. He misunderstood just like we do. But he never lost that connection to God. So he kind of reveals his heart here as a believer. And it says in verses 6 through 9, But he has made me, made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men, men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Job reminds us, and you think he was trying to remind himself, but he also reminds us that when we walk with Jesus, we will be misunderstood, reviled, and even persecuted. But, but, God will ultimately strengthen us to get through and fulfill the plans that he has for us. Remember, God has a plan and a purpose for each and every person. And he will not, he, he will not allow you not to fulfill that plan. He's gonna ha- it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So never think just because you're suffering or you're going through a trial that God is done with you. He's not. He may actually be preparing you through that trial for something even greater. Job, in these next few verses coming up, he recognizes that death brings an end to suffering. 
That's true. But it also brings, but in his eyes, it brings an end to any hope. We're going to see that he, he's kind of looking at this um, like as Solomon did, you know, under the sun in this earthly plane. We're going to see that Job is not seeing the full picture. But in verses 10 through 16, it says, But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? So Job is, again, we've spoken about this a few times as he's seeing kind of this this, uh, veiled view of eternity, right? He doesn't understand completely. Um, But he's kind of making himself... (laughs) because he lost all of his family, right, just about, except for his wife. So he will, he will take a worm as a relative. He'll take corruption as his father. Um, he'll take anything at this point because he's so dejected. You see the depth of his suffering that he utters those words, that he would consider the grave as his c- close relative. But Job wasn't seeing the whole picture. And this is, this is where I'll close out tonight because we, we need to see what Job doesn't see. And the fact of the matter is that the Bible reveals what Job doesn't see in its completeness. Job doesn't see that whole picture of what true hope is. He believes that our hope ends when we die. But the Apostle Paul gave us great perspective on this, really. He told us something completely different than that. In 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, verse 19 through 21, it's a beautiful portion of Scripture. It says, uh, in this life, if in this life only, this life, in other words, this life under the sun, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, We are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that in this life, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you won't suffer trials. So if your hope is attached to this world people will look at you and they'll actually pity you they'll say look he's he's believing in this god and yet he's going through all of these trials what a pity he's wasting his life he's wasting his life going to church he's wasting his life serving this god who doesn't care about him obviously because look what he's dealing with But Paul says that's not the end of our hope. Not at all. See, if we only have hope in this life, we are pitiable. 
But our hope is what? Is in eternal life. What comes next? See, this life here is preparation, so to speak. The trials here are for purposes that we don't understand necessarily. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have a hope in a living Savior because Jesus overcame death. He overcame the grave. He overcame our greatest enemy because eternal separation from God right, is worse than anything that we could face here in this life. But we have that hope of the resurrection and we can face the trials in this life because we have confidence in God. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.